There's very little here, scrub brush, rocks, an abundance of mineral deposits, but no weapons in the conventional sense. Still, I need to find one, barehanded, against the Gorn. I have no chance. Bridge to Walt Dex, time for a new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And this episode, Scott, it is the images from this episode are as iconic to the original series as anything I can think of. And I cannot wait to get into it. I mean, is there any episode up to this point, Steve, that that just visually is more iconic than Arena? I mean, between Vasquez Rocks, the most iconic Star Trek location, and the Gorn, like, I don't think so. <laughs> the Gorn is a is an alien that only appeared once in Star Trek, all the way up until the Enterprise TV series, uh, you know, the Mirror Universe mm-hmm. episode of that. We see the Gorn again, but it was all like a CGI character. But the Gorn is such a famous alien, yeah. and he was – for, for a long, long time, the Gorm was only in that one episode of Arena. But you're right. Arena is iconic. When you mention the name Arena from Star Trek, the first thing you conjure up is either Vasquez Rocks or the Gorn itself. And Arena was the 18th episode of Star Trek to air, which it did on January 19th, 1967. But it was the 20th episode of Star Trek to be filmed and was filmed right on schedule for six production days that took place between November 8th and November 15th, 1966. The cost of this episode was $197,586. Compare that to the budget now for the second half of the first season, which is $185,000. It actually came over budget by $12,586. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that this episode is the first screenplay credit of Star Trek, anyway, for Gene Kuhn. Mm. He had replaced Gene Roddenberry as the showrunner, as we call it today, but he was the uh, new day-to-day producer for Star Trek. And he certainly had made his mark in the two prior episodes we talked about, which were Shore Leave and Squire of Gothos. So he got the screenplay credit. He wrote, he wrote Arena, but he had to share his screenplay credit with a story by credit to Frederick Brown. I'll get into that in a second. But what's perhaps even more notable than the Gorn, more notable than Vasquez Rocks, is that Arena is the first Star Trek episode to be directed by Joseph Pevney. And that name should sound familiar to everyone listening to Enterprise Incidents. Because not only did Joe Pevney tie with Mark Daniels as having directed 14 episodes of Star Trek, the most of any director, Joe Pevney and Mark Daniels, both directed 14 episodes each. But here are some of the other episodes that Joseph Pevney directed. Devil in the Dark, The City on the Edge of Forever, A Mock Time, The Trouble with Tribbles. I mean, Steve, do the Star Trek get any better than these episodes? That is top tier right there. It is as top tier as it could possibly get. Now, now here's the other good news. So you're watching Arena and you're thinking, God, with all the on-location 
shooting that they were doing. This episode should have gone over schedule, but it was brought on schedule six days. Now, when Joe Pevney initially came on, he thought the episode was going to take seven days to film, meaning it was going to go over schedule by one extra day. But the miracle is that he shot it on schedule in six days. And for bringing it in on schedule, he received a $500 bonus. Nice. Yeah, nice. the, the, the producers were so thrilled, like especially you got to imagine like Bob Justman must have been over the moon that this guy came in and did it right on schedule in six days. But as a result, he kind of butted heads with cinematographer Jerry Finnerman. Now, Jerry Finnerman, as you know, is just this, this legend when it came to the cinematography of the original series. And Joe Pedney wanted to work really fast and – Finnerman, you know, wanted to speed things along too, but not at the expense of his work. So they initially kind of butted heads a little bit, but then they, you know, talked through it and they worked it out and uh, they they became really, really great friends. But uh, Joe Pevney came into Star Trek because of Gene Kuhn, because they had both worked together at Universal. And Pedney had started out as a child singer in vaudeville. And he was a stage actor. And then he became a director. And among the movies he directed, Iron Man, not with Robert Downey Jr., but Iron Man with Jeff Chandler, Flesh and Fury with Tony Curtis, Meet Danny Wilson with Frank Sinatra, Desert Legion with Alan Ladd, Foxfire with Jane Russell, Twilight of the Gods with Rock Hudson. I mean, look at these legends he's worked with in film. And then on TV, he did 14 episodes of Going My Way, 24 episodes of Wagon Train, six episodes of Bonanza, and 11 episodes of The Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> which is and, a Gene Coon show, so Which makes was sense. right. Yeah, Gene Coon cre- helped create that show. And, of course, 14 episodes of Star Trek. And where they saved money is in the music. All of the music in this episode was tracked from previous episodes. Now, the visual effects for this episode were actually pretty substantial. It came to about $6,931. And when I say substantial, I mean, you know, substantial for 1966. Of course. But um, what was your take? Like, what was the first time? You saw Rena. Well, I want to discuss an interesting phenomenon that exists for people our age that knows no longer exists today. And that is if somebody wants to sit down and watch an episode of Star Trek today, they're going to go to some streaming service and they're going to push a button and it's going to start from the beginning. But when you're our age and TV came on when it came on. You didn't always see the beginning. So maybe I had, uh, you know, a Boy Scout meeting or I was Little League practice or soccer and I'm rushing home and I came in in the middle. And for some reason, I think Arena is an episode of Star Trek that I saw the second half way more often than I saw the first half, just in the rolling of the dice. And so every time I watch it, I know the second half by heart. And, and but every time I watch it and it opens up with that teaser and even the first act, I go, oh, yeah, this is what happens. And it's such a strange thing that kids today, they're never going to have this experience of just what's on and coming in in the middle of a movie or a TV show or whatever, because that's how you watch TV. But that being said, I've oh, of course, I've always loved this episode. It is a great episode. It's a classic one. I'll tell you, of all everything we've watched There are things that make me like Arena probably less 
from watching it this time for the show. Although there are also things in it that are still absolutely great. And we'll get into that. How about you? So, so I think I told you that when, oh yeah, when we were talking about Shirley, I had told you that, that Shirley was the first episode that I had taped on my, my hmm. VCR, my, my Betamax. So, you know, two nights later, I taped Arena. And that was probably the first time I even saw Arena was when I taped it on my, my Betamax. And that was an episode that I kept rewinding and watching over and over again because there is a whole lot going on in Arena. You've got the big battle on Cestus Three, the pursuit of the ship, and then the whole asteroid fight between Captain Kirk and the Gorn. And this is an episode that moves along at a very brisk pace, a lot of action. I mean, for all the suits at NBC who wanted an action adventure show, that is exactly what they got when Arena aired on NBC on January 19th, 1967. So, of course, over these years and now today, I see Arena for a whole lot more. I still think it is extremely entertaining. It is still a very action-packed episode. It is an iconic episode, one of the very best of the series, no question about it. But what I appreciate about Arena now is just how much of a Gene Kuhn staple it is. Like when you look at the episodes that Gene Kuhn produced, especially the episodes that Gene Kuhn wrote, so many of the signature gotcha moments, so to speak, that Gene Kuhn put in arena, like when you find out, you know, jumping to the chase, cutting to the chase here, that that they saw us as invaders, not just that we saw them as invaders. Look at his Look at Errand of Mercy when you Mm -hmm. find out who the Organians really are. Look at Devil in the Dark when you find out who the Hoarder really is. Look at Metamorphosis when you find out what the companion really is. These are all moments that flip the episodes over. And in one way or another, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, they realize, you know, maybe they were wrong. And we see our heroes learn from their mistakes and take very noble actions and very compassionate actions. And those are all uh, staples of Gene Kuhn. And I just think that uh, Arena just is a magnificent episode. Even people who have never watched Star Trek before know the Gorn. (laughs) Of course. Scott, you want to know some of the things going on in the world when they were filming this episode? Let's hear it. Well, it starts on November 9th with a true tragedy in a fatal car accident. One of the greatest musicians of all time, Paul McCartney, was killed on November 9th, 1966. And that, of course, is the beginning of the Paul is dead rumor. That's when people believe that he had died. He didn't die. In fact, that, that was when he he allegedly <laughs> blew his mind out in a car. Yep, you know that's it. And, and oh, and that's when an actor named William Campbell mm, replaced mm-hmm. him. Was it the William Campbell who played Trelane in our prior episode of Enterprise Incidents for the Spire of Gothos? I don't know, but oh my gosh, rest in peace. I yeah, buried Paul. <laughs> so so sad. On the eleventh, Generalissimo Francisco Franco pardoned. All the other side, the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. On the same day, the final Gemini mission, Gemini 12, was launched with astronauts Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. Mm. Yeah. On November 12th, 
four Israeli soldiers were killed by a landmine on the Jordanian border. And on November 13th, in retaliation, Israeli tanks swept across the Jordanian border to attack buildings in As-Samu, which was a town used by the terrorist group Fatah to launch attacks into Israel. And because Israel had violated Jordan's territory, they, the Jordan Air Force, launched four planes. And to protect the tanks, Israel launched their air force and the resulting uh, dogfight resulted in 13 dead Jordanian soldiers and 13 civilians killed. That is on November 12th and 13th. And on November 15th, Gemini 12 splashed down safely in the Bahamas. Wow. So that was the last Gemini mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then from then on, they were on to Apollo. Yep. And uh, in 1967, January 1967, 10 days or so before uh, or 10 days after, rather, uh, Arena aired is when you had the Apollo on fire. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, that was a big tragedy. Wow. And then they got they got their acts together. But but so, yeah, talk about a lot going on. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Steve, where a lot really didn't have to go on was in the development of this story from outline to finished form. So check this out. Gene Kuhn came up with his story outline. On October 10th, 1966, he did a first draft on October 13th. He did a revised final draft on November 9th. And then he did some some page revisions uh, uh, between November 4th and November 15th. But like I said, this is Gene Kuhn's first original screenplay. And the uh, evolution from outline to, to shooting script happened so fast there were other episodes that were still in development and arena went ahead of those episodes because Gene Kuhn wrote them so quickly and so efficiently. But here was the problem. Hmm. The problem was that arena Kuhn's first original screenplay was not original at all. It too closely resembled a short story of the same name written by an author named Frederick Brown for hmm. Astounding Magazine in 1944. So they got flagged for potential plagiarism and they had to make a deal with Frederick Brown by sending him Gene Kuhn's screenplay. Fortunately, Frederick Brown was delighted that Star Trek was adapting <laughs> his story. So Gene Kuhn got the screenplay credit, Frederick Brown got the story by credit and of course he got some money too and everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know what? That is the best plagiarism story I've ever heard. Like <laughs> they took it and then they gave him credit and gave him some money and he was happy. That's they, they, they made awesome. lemonade out of lemons for sure. And Absolutely. Uh, uh, it was the shortest path yet from story outline to final shooting draft. And you're gonna see, Steve, when we talk about the other screenplays that Jack Gene Kuhn wrote. These are the fastest from outline to shooting script because, you know, you got your showrunner writing the screenplay, you know, cut for a lot of lot of red tape there. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have Gene Roddenberry and a whole bunch of other people going, nope, nope, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it, It also helps everyone down the line in production because if the script is locked in early and there's not a lot of contention, it saves lots of time and money down the line. So that's great. <laughs> Would you like to enter the arena? 
Let's head down to Cestus 3. Well, we start, and this is the part I never remember, is we start in the transporter room having this <laughs> whole conversation about this Commodore who's going to give us a great meal. And I love the moment where McCoy is just beaming with excitement. He says, I, for one, could use a good non-reconstituted meal. Doctor, <laughs> you are a sensualist. You bet your pointed ears I am. Can you blame McCoy for being excited about an actual meal because in the prior episode they were having dinner on oh, Gothos that's right. with Trelane and the food didn't have any taste. <laughs> what a great point. Yes. He, so that, so he's had his reconstituted, whatever they can make in the galley of the enterprise. And he had some fake food with, uh, with Trelane. And so of course he wants some food. And the other interesting thing is this Commodore has said, make sure you bring your tactical aids. I wonder why he's so insistent that our tactical aids come down. This colony is isolated, exposed out on the edge of nowhere. He probably wants additional advice. And they arrive on the planet in a high angle, and immediately they all draw their weapons because it's like they beamed right into a war zone. Look at the directing choice that Joe Pevney made right there. So you see the landing party materialize. They look around. Immediately, they all draw their phasers. Kirk to Enterprise. Red alert. What is it? Cessus 3 has been destroyed. So what happens, Steve, between... Being in the transporter room, talking to Travers, having this moment of levity and beaming down and Cestus 3 has been completely destroyed. It is it is such a weird moment. And I'm not 100 percent sure this really tracks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like what mm-hmm, what what yeah. I think that they're saying, and of course, spoiler alert, they've been attacked by the Gorn and that's who we're going to deal with for the rest of the episode. But it seems like the implication is, is that the Gorn created this fake message to lure the Enterprise there in order to destroy it and ask the tactical team to beam down because those are the people they most want to take out because they would be the best people to fight back against the Gorn. Is that is that kind of what you see is what's yeah, going on? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me too. I was, you know, but I, I've never discussed it with anybody before. Well, <laughs> but what's weird about it is that it also seems like they're totally incapable of communicating between the humans and the Gorn because the whole premise of this show is based on the fact that they're not communicating. So how the Gorn can fake this signal so perfectly to lure them in and yet not actually be able to communicate it all. It doesn't, it does. That's why I say it doesn't quite track, but it does make for a great surprise at the end of the teaser. That's a teaser. I mean, that is how you do a teaser. I mean, like you, you, the, like, look at the complete shift in tone from they're pretty relaxed. It's very light. Yeah. Yeah. Very light. You know, they just had this experience with Trelane while definitely notable. It was, it was also very amusing. I mean, there is, there is definitely a fun factor to the Squire of Gothos. So they're coming off that probably just like laughing, like, can you believe this guy Trelane? Like, like he was, he was just a kid. He was a spoiled little brat. And now we're going to go, we're going to have a real meal and they beam down and Cessus three is, 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 uh, is, is obliterated. And it's like, what a shocking teaser. It is. And we come back right to the same spot when we come back in act one. And by the way, I think this opening, this is like the biggest scale I think we've seen in Star Trek in terms of an exterior environment with explosions. And, a, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. I would have thought that this episode would have been even further over budget and not finish on time. It makes sense. This would have taken seven days. I mean, I don't think we haven't had like big explosions like this in Star Trek. Have we? 
No, definitely not. I mean, when they had the location shooting on Miri, you know, that was a backlight. Right. And then you had the uh, location shooting in Vasquez Rocks and Africa, USA for sure leave. Right. But in terms of like explosions and explosions, uh, which were which were done by Jim Rugg uh, for, for Star Trek, uh, this is definitely, I would say, the, the most epic scale we have yeah. seen yet. And even even, you know, the menagerie in the cage, you know, all that stuff with the phaser cannon on Talos four, that was all that was all on the uh, Culver City lot. So that mm. was not outside. Um, and they hear their sensors say that there's maybe a survivor and they find the survivor. And again, I know Dave explained what all the different insignia are. I don't know which insignia it is that he has. If you want to know what his uniform is, mm, uh, yes. take a closer look at the uniform worn by the Earth Outpost commander in Balance mm. of Terror. Oh, it's the same uniform. He does oh. wear the same shirt. Yeah. Same shirt. <laughs> same shirt. <awesome>. Yep. <laughs> Shock. Radiation burns. Internal injuries for certain. He's in a bad way, Captain. Keep him alive, Bones. I want to know what's been happening here. And then we get uh, the tricorder shows that there's some other life readings, but they are not human. Where? Azimuth 93 degrees, range 1570 yards. Kirk sends out some of his tactical advisors and one of the guys gets up, says he sees something and disappears and they are under fire. That actor was Jerry Ayers. He was playing Ensign O'Hurley and he got disintegrated and destroyed. But if he looks familiar, he should because he also played Ensign Rizzo in Obsession. Mm. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. Um, <laughs> Kirk to Enterprise. Lock on transporters. Beam us up. But unfortunately, the Enterprise is also under attack. He talks to Sulu. And it's interesting to me that Sulu seems to be both in command, but still at the helm. Um, and why uh, isn't Scotty in command? Well, th this is this question that's come up a couple of times. And of course, I think the real reasons is, they haven't, they just haven't worked it all out, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. Sulu was already on the bridge and he just took yeah. command. Scotty's in engineering, dealing with the fact that they're under attack yeah. now. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, and honestly, I, the, the most surprising officer to me in watching these early episodes with you, Scott, has been Sulu. Mm -hmm. I think Sulu is like, man, he's really good and competent and interesting. Um, I was actually thinking uh, recently, it's like, you know, if I was going to launch a Star Trek series, I might want to do Sulu, Captain Sulu. Well, you know who else wanted to do Captain Sulu? <laughs> George K. George K. Yeah, yeah for sure years. For years after uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, he had been lobbying to do a Captain Sulu TV series. And, you know, that never happened. Although uh, he did get to do an episode of Voyager, Star Trek Voyager. Mm. Uh, uh, so that was sort of like the uh, consolation prize. That's the bone they threw him. You know, they, they threw him a bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's actually a really good episode. But no, I I, I thought Sulu, like, I, I would be perfectly comfortable serving under Sulu if he was captain. This was the first of two times that Sulu actually stepped in to uh, uh, command the Enterprise, the other being Errand of Mercy. Mm. Um, yeah, I think he's absolutely great. And of course, I think this is the first time we've heard this, which is they've got their screens up. The alien has screens up too. Take all action necessary to protect the ship. Are you under attack, Captain? We could drop screens. Keep those screens up. Worry about us when the ship is safe. Like he's so driven, so driven, so protective of the Enterprise. Yep. 
down on the planet. They are outnumbered. They are outgunned. You remember the layout of this place, the arsenal? And of course, Spock has apparently memorized the map of every single outpost of the galaxy, I guess, because <laughs> yeah. he knows exactly where the arsenal is, whether or not there's still weapons there after this huge attack, who knows? Um, and Kirk says he'll risk it and he runs out through big explosions. Very you know, big explosions, yeah. very big explosions. And and one of those explosions knocks him off his feet. And by the way, you could see watching the episode, especially in HD, that's not a stunt person. That's Shatner. Okay. It's, yeah, it's really crazy. And here's the other thing. Unfortunately, yeah. it was during the filming of this episode of Arena that William Shatner started suffering from tinnitus. Tinnitus oh. is a, a hearing yeah. a problem. A constant. It's a it's a constant ringing in the ear, and he has it to this day because of an explosion that occurred during the filming of Arena. And this scene right here happened on day four of filming Arena, and it could actually be this very scene, this explosion that knocks Shatner off his feet, because you could see he's kind of just like totally uh, dazed, pulverized. Yeah. 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 Totally dazed by the explosion. It's interesting that you say this. So the episode that we literally just released this morning, as we're recording this on the cinephiles is on Die Hard, which I think is going to be a three-parter. I think we'll probably <laughs> talk for six hours or something about Die Hard. One of my favorite films, but in Die Hard, Bruce Willis is underneath the table shooting up at the guy through the table that he kills. You remember that moment in the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Bruce Willis had two-thirds hearing, permanent hearing loss from firing the blanks underneath the table because you're in an enclosed space and the gun was really close to him, super, super loud, and permanently damaged his hearing. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shatner has talked about how has tinnitus he still suffers from it and he it really you know he really has had a hard time with it mm. it sounds terrible i've heard from other people who have it it just sounds like one of those things that is continually continually irritating you exactly mm-hmm. kirk here captain are you all right never mind about me what about the ship we've returned fire with all phaser banks negative against this deflector screen i'm your photon torpedoes aye aye sir I love that he's giving battle commands about firing the torpedoes or the phasers when he's just on the planet. And I'm kind of like, you know what? Sulu can actually see what's happening. He really can't. But, um, and one of the things we hear is that we can't even see this ship. It's too far away for visuals. We're having a battle with an alien ship that we can't even see. Of course, the first thing I thought of is what you've been telling me all along. It's like, because they couldn't afford to make a model. That's why we can't <laughs> right. see the ship. And then there's this, another huge explosion. I think this one is a stuntman. It does a huge role. And I love that he like rolls and pops right back up with his communicator and keeps talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's, it's like, I know I'm down here. I know you're up there, but it's still my ship. I'm in command and he's still giving the orders. <laughs> um, and the final order is basically to get the hell out of there. And Takei reluctantly agrees, and he says, I'm warping out of orbit. One thing about this scene is that, first of all, who's who's the navigator on the Enterprise? Mm, it's I, Lieutenant DePaul. And Lieutenant DePaul is played by Sean Kenny, who played the injured Captain Pike in the envelope portion oh. of the menagerie. So, yeah, after after he had to basically sit still and be covered with makeup and be confined by that by that 23rd century wheelchair, uh, Roddenberry gave him the chance to have an actual speaking part. So he was navigator, Lieutenant DePaul, and also 
This scene is notable because it is the first time we hear the words photon torpedoes. Mm. This is the first time that the Enterprise is firing photon torpedoes. Actually, in the episode Balance of Terror, you know, the phasers were fired like photon torpedoes, but... You know, they're still figuring things out and everything like that. They didn't come up with the word photon torpedoes until Arena. And it was actually Gene Kuhn who created the word photon torpedoes. And also in this episode, the word federation is used by the the first time. And Gene Kuhn created that as well. Wow. You know, it's funny. Obviously, there are many, many people who have many, many debates about canon and what is canon and how exactly does everything work. And I'm always a little trepidatious because I think of it so much more from the writer perspective is that I believe there are things that are canon and there are things that aren't, but I also believe don't be too rigid about it. You know what? Some of this stuff is like, that's just what they wrote this time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, in Balance of Terror, the phasers look like photon torpedoes. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> this is a very strange moment where Spock runs up to Kirk and I guess somehow the Gorn have got into his tricorder and they've made it overload and he has to throw yeah. it away. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> it's another moment where I'm like, I understood How'd that happened. <laughs> yeah. It just seems, well, you know what? And you know what this is? This I would say is actually the problem when the producer, the showrunner actually wrote the script because you don't have that other person to say, Hey, Gene, this thing about the tricorder doesn't, I don't, doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. yeah you know, totally, there's no yeah. one to say that. And now we've got our grenade launcher with these blue grenades. And we I like the fact that we have our tactical guys there. And Kirk asked the advice of one of the tactical guys on where do you think they would be? What position are they in? And, and exactly how are we going to fire this? It looks really like more like a mortar to me. Yeah, oh, totally. And it's uh, Lieutenant Kellowitz. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Kellowitz is played by Grant Woods. And you might recognize Lieutenant Kellowitz because we just saw him in the Galileo 7. Uh, he was on the Enterprise view screen when he beamed oh. back aboard, and he was the one telling Captain Kirk, oh, yeah, there are these giant ape-like creatures down there. And he was also uh, in This Side of Paradise. So he actually did three episodes of the original series, actor Grant Woods. Um, and they fire off this blue things. I love it. And he says, too, by the way, pretty close for one of these little jewels. So mm-hmm. obviously this is a powerful weapon. And they fire it. They run to take cover. Ish. They don't, it's not really cover where they run to. It's like, wait, I don't think that looks that safe. Big, huge <laughs> explosion. And now the aliens are withdrawing. And now, which means that the enterprise is no longer attacking under attack and they can beam up Kirk and the landing party. And now we're back on the enterprise in sick bay. And we're trying to get information from this wounded guy from the planet. And he's his face is scarred and he is in some serious emotional distress. They knocked out our phaser batteries with their first salvo. From then on, we were helpless. We weren't expecting anything. It's Lieutenant Harold and it's a play by actor, Tom Troop. We had women and children. I told them that I begged them. They wouldn't listen. They didn't let up for a moment. I would say he is overacting a little bit. Like yeah, if I yeah. were his director, I would say in a really nice way, look, I love what you're doing. It's really great. Let's pull it back a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. you know, what's interesting about directing <laughs> is, is there frequently times where you, sometimes you just say to straight up, say, this is what I want you to do. And sometimes because 
actors can get in their head or their ego can be a little sensitive sometimes, which makes sense, by the way, that an acting that, that job of having everybody look at you while you writhe around being super emotional is hard. And what I probably would have said to him as the director is I probably would have said, I think you're weaker than that. I think you're tired and you're maybe still a little hazy from the drugs. And that hopefully would get him to do the same beat work, but just pull it back a little bit. Why? Why did they do it? There has to be a reason. There has to be a reason. One of the interesting things about the way they shot this scene is it's almost entirely in close-ups. And then you cut from this close-ups at this moment where this guy is repeating why to another close-up immediately on Kirk saying it was a trap. And only this time, Kirk is not in sick day. He's in his quarters talking to Spock. Right. And there's no master shot, which is a, which is a strange it kind of propels you right from one conversation to another without letting it takes you a while to figure out what, where are we, how much time has passed. Uh, and then we get into what is a fascinating conflict in this episode. And that is one unlike one I think we've ever seen between Spock and Kirk. The Enterprise is the only protection in this section of the Federation. Destroy the Enterprise and everything is wide open. You will allude to invasion, Captain. Yet positive proof has... I have all the proof I need on Cestus Three. Not necessarily, sir. Several possible explanations... Come How can you explain a massacre like that? No, Mr. Spock. The threat is clear and immediate. Invasion. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Yes. So here you have an Earth base, an Earth outpost, attacked by an unknown enemy. Mm-hmm. In Balance of Terror, we had an Earth outpost attacked by well not an unknown enemy but an enemy where we didn't know what the what the enemy looked like so what's the difference between the conversation that Kirk and Spock are having here and the conversation that the entire all the senior officers had in the briefing room in balance of terror like in balance of terror Kirk's decision making was extremely rational it was mm-hmm. very rational. His his uh, emotion about the situation was dialed back. In Arena, it's a very similar situation, only it's not the Romulans attacking. We don't know who these aliens are at all, but they did attack, and now we have to get them before they get back to their home base. Very similar to yeah. what happened in Balance of Terror, only this time – Kirk is very emotional about it. He's very driven and he's very persistent. And as we will see, he he's almost stubborn about, about getting the aliens. I think this comparison is exactly right. I was thinking about exactly the same thing. I think it's hard for me to come up with what I think the explanation is, other than the fact that I think Gene Kuhn wanted Kirk to have a character arc, is that he wanted him to start in one place and end up in another place, because that's how we show somebody le- learning a lesson. The other thing I would say is that the Romulans, despite the fact we had never seen them, are well known. We have a, a lot of history with them, and we know that maybe millions of people died in the previous war, and that this treaty that was created is super delicate, and that the consequences of the treaty being destroyed could mean millions more people dying. And I, and Kirk has very specific orders in that case that he shouldn't start a war. Under no circumstances should he start a war. And so in that sense, I think he's being more measured and balanced, where this one, frankly, I think he's pissed off. I think he knew people on this planet. 
I think there were a lot of people that were just wiped out, including women and children. And I think Kirk is angry. And because he knows nothing about the Gorn, he doesn't even know the name Gorn at this right. moment. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. responding, frankly, way more like Styles, which is that he's just decided these are evil. That but whoever these people are, there is no explanation other than they're evil. Uh, they attacked our see. base. They yeah. invaded our base. For no reason whatsoever. Right. They are just the, evil. Well, um, well, there's for no reason that we know of. That we know of. Right. But Kirk thinks he knows the reason. And this is the and what's so funny is it reminds me of Spock in Galileo 7 predicting what the native species is, how they're going to behave without knowing anything about them. Mm -hmm, Kirk mm -hmm. has now made a decision about who this species is with very, very little evidence. And Spock, who had the experience of Galileo 7 and of making the wrong assumptions, is now more reluctant to make assumptions. Like, whoa, whoa, we don't quite know. There could be other explanations. And also the other difference here is that in Balance of Terror, Spock was like, yeah, we got to get these people. We got to get them before they get to their home base. Weakness, he said in Balance of Terror, he said, if they are, if the Romulans are an offshoot of Vulcans, then weakness is something we dare not show. In the case of these unknown aliens in Arena, he's, well, as we'll see. I think Nimoy's performance in this whole episode is great. I think it's really good. And I think you can see kind of the pain in him of, I don't agree with what Kirk is doing. Because the way he says the line, he says, because uh, Kirk basically says, no, Mr. Spock, the threat is clear and immediate invasion. Mm. And there's a pause and Nimoy processes that. And this is his commanding officer. There's a certain thing of like, well, once your commanding officer makes the statement, your job is to support them. And so he says, very well, if that's the case, then we have to do what you said. Right, exactly. But I don't think he's agreed. He said, if if that is true, then we have to do this. Oh, I see what you're saying. Because that actually, that act, your, your theory is supported because in the very next scene, you know, we see Spock trying to backpedal a little bit. I think Spock is uncomfortable with Kirk's attitude through the whole first half of the show. I agree with you. Red alert. I repeat, red alert. This is no drill. This is no drill. Like, I got to say, every act ends on such a great moment in Arena. Everyone. Act two, we are in hot pursuit. Um, It's interesting that Kirk says that he wants the scanners locked into the computer banks because he wants a complete record. Is that... He wants all of this to be recorded because you're dealing with a new alien race. You're dealing with new technology. We don't know what's going to happen. This is really, really important. Um, And he asked Spock about the info on the area they're going into. And this is the first inkling we get that there's something going on, which is... Anything on intelligent life forms? Nothing specific, Captain. Unscientific rumors only. More like space legends. And it reminds me of like Charlie X, you know, where there's we've heard something about this area, but we don't know anything. Now, you know, we've talked about this before, about how, you know, there aren't really a whole lot of episodes of Star Trek where they really do explore strange new worlds, where they're seeking out new life and new civilizations. But at the beginning of Arena, Kirk says that this colony is out on the edge of nowhere. So they're on the frontier. They are in the final frontier beyond the outpost is the unknown. You're really getting the feeling that anything could happen yeah. 
and anything and everything does happen. They must be aware we're after this here. They've gone to Warp 6 also. And Kirk says, after a pause... Warp Factor 7. And there is a reaction that goes around the entire bridge. What is the fa- Is this the fastest, quote unquote, fastest we've gone so far? So far, yes. In, in terms of our voyage on Enterprise incidents to go in production order, this is the fastest we've seen the Enterprise go. But uh, the fastest the Enterprise actually went in the original series was warp 14.1 in the episode That Which Survives uh, in the third season. I think today, if you're starting a sci-fi show or any show like this, one of the first things you do, you do something when you're creating a TV show called creating a Bible. And the Bible is, here are all the characters, here's all the background, here's all the locations, here's the way everything works. Is they would have worked out, okay, how fast do we really go? And where? what are the limitations of the ship? And that way it would be consistent. In this case, they obviously haven't really worked out because <laughs> the reaction for War Factor 7 is pretty big. I mean to catch them. We'll either catch them or we'll blow up, Captain. They may be faster than we are. And Kirk even says, they'll have to prove it. And this is where I go, I feel this is a little out of character for Kirk. I think he is, but, but, you know, we could speculate that he actually knew a whole bunch of people that were killed and he's just really, really angry. Um, But he is being very aggressive with the ship. Okay. That's a really good point, Steve. And I agree with you. I was thinking about it while I was rewatching Arena uh, to prepare for this. And I was remarking that while he's on the bridge, he's being so aggressive to the point where he's obsessed. Yeah. And that made me think of obsession. Of his aggression in the yeah. episode Obsession. Now, that motive in Obsession was personal because of right. the because he froze and it, you know, killed his captain on the Farragut. But you're right. There might be people on Cessus 3 that he knew that he just, you know, we don't know about, but he does. But also, like you said, that Gene Kuhn probably had an idea for Kirk to really have a dynamic and complete and ever-changing arc throughout the 50 minutes of this episode, which he absolutely does. He absolutely does. I love the way Nimoy, Mr. Spock, approaches Kirk at this moment. And I like the staging of it that that Kirk is facing forward in the big chair and Spock is facing the other direction sheepishly, sort of head down, because he knows that he want, he needs to go contradict his captain, that he doesn't agree, and he's trying to think of how to do it respectfully. You mean to destroy the alien ship, Captain? Of course. I thought perhaps the hot pursuit alone might be sufficient. Destruction may be unnecessary. This is what, what I would call managing up. I don't know if you've ever had this situation where you <laughs> had to, your boss was doing the wrong thing, and you had to, in the nicest possible way, try to manipulate your boss into doing what you think is right. That is what Spock is trying to do right now. And this is not the first time that we see Spock do this, mm. where where his commanding officer has made a decision that we're going to get these people or these aliens and kill them. We're going to get this alien and kill it. We're going to we're going to take this. We're going to take this force that is threatening us in one way or another, and we are going to eliminate it. In uh, Look at Devil in the Dark when yeah. they're on the planet hunting down the Horda, and then Spock chimes in, try to capture it. And then Kirk says, wait a minute, I don't remember giving an order yeah. to have it captured. you know." And then in Metamorphosis, the way Kirk is with the companion, he's like, if the companion is in the way, we push it out of the way. Is that clear? But this is 
another aspect of Arena that makes Arena a quintessential Gene Kuhn episode. And I think what's so great about it is how willing the show is to let its characters disagree and be flawed. Even our hero, who you and I have said over and over again, Kirk is our hero, and we think yep. he's awesome. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm, and I love, mm-hmm, too, that mm-hmm. Spock he first talks to him as captain and sir, and then when Kirk says... Colony Cestus Three has been obliterated, Mr. Spock. Spock says... The destruction of the alien vessel will not help that colony, Jim. He uses his first name. Oh, yeah. You know? You're right. You're right. And he continues to argue, and Kirk interrupts him strongly and loudly for the entire crew on the bridge to hear. I merely suggest that a regard for sentient There's life. no time for that. Yeah, and the Uhura turns around and stares at him. I mean, again, the the it's not quite to the level as it was in the episode Obsession, but Kirk's diligence and his perseverance and his and his steadfastness in at this moment is it's so close to being obsessed. Well, and the crew for maybe the first time I can think of is not with him. They yeah. are concerned. They mm-hmm. are going, they, they are go- looking like this isn't our captain. This isn't how he usually behaves. By the way, it's an interesting piece of sta- staging because Kirk notices this reaction that goes around the room. So he wants to talk more privately with Spock. And rather than standing up and just turning to face him, he walks all the way around the back of his chair to end up on the other side, which is better for camera. There's a reason that you do it that way because it would put them in an awkward position if Kirk did what would be the natural thing to do, just stand up and start talking. And Kirk says basically that they're the police out here, that a crime has been committed. And then he ends it with, do I make myself clear? And Spock, almost at attention, says, very clear, Captain. I'm delighted, Mr. Spock. You know, I know I've said this in the last couple of episodes that we've talked about, Shoreleave, Squire, Gothos, even the Menagerie. The show feels very different now. The characters are more dynamic. There is more depth to them. There's more, I would say, humility to them, especially with regards to Captain Kirk. We see our heroes making mistakes. Yeah. But the reason, the reason, Steve, that they are our heroes, especially Captain Kirk, is because of the nobility they express when they learn from their mistakes. That is why Kirk is. Kirk is my hero. I couldn't agree more. And so after this moment where he shut down Mr. Spock and we hear that the alien is now up to warp factor seven, Kirk takes a pause and then says, Warp factor eight. And Scotty and Mr. Leslie, played by Eddie Paskey, sit right next to Scotty. Uh, They all look at him like, oh boy. (laughs) Here's what I think they don't do well in this episode is that you remember in Corbomite when we're using all of our power to escape from the tractor beam and you could hear the engines going and you could hear the tension building as the ship's about to blow up for using so much energy. They didn't do any of that in this. There's Mm -hmm. no sound design that's showing that the enterprise is straining. And I think that would have added a lot to the tension had they done that. There's an interesting technical thing that happens next. We go to an exterior shot, an effect shot. And then, and I don't think they do this very much at all in the series, is we dissolve from the effect shot to Sulu, who's smiling. And I had to go back and check it. I looked at both the original effects and the remastered effects. And it's the same in both of them. And the reason I found this interesting is that 
sometimes when you restore a film, you're just looking at the best print or the best negative of the film and you clean it up. But that dissolve is in the negative. And so when they did the remastered effects, they must have gone back to the original negative of Sulu in order to do a new dissolve with the remastered effect is they couldn't have, because if you have a cut, I could just cut out of the original show, cut in a new effect and then cut back. But if I do a dissolve between the two, I have to have the original footage without the dissolve in order to make it work. Okay. Here's how that scene worked in the remastered version. Hmm. In the original version, you're right. There's a dissolve to the enterprise of the enterprise coming to the screen and it slowly dissolves to zooming in on Sulu at yep. his at the helm. So what they did for the remastered version is the new visual effects of the Enterprise coming towards the screen. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they did the dissolve over to Sulu. That happened just a couple of seconds later. Ah. If you play them side by side, You'll that's see how you'd the have dissolve. To do it. That's how you have to do it. Yeah. Because if you dissolve to Sulu too soon, you'll see the, the Enterprise effect. from the old effect. But yeah. if you extend the shot, the visual effect shot of the Enterprise just a little bit longer and then dissolve to Sulu, then you'll you won't see the original effect shot. You know what they also might have had to do is change the speed a little bit. Because mm -hmm. if you if you cut in later for the dissolve, then you're changing the total length of time. But Absolutely. of course, that's how they do it. Unless because that's what I was going like. Well, either they had access to the original footage before the optical of the dissolve was put in, or and what you said makes perfect sense that that's how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, and at this moment, and we're closing in on uh, the alien ship, and we got our phasers locked in, and we're also coming by this uncharted solar system which the alien isn't headed towards, but Uhura says that we are being scanned from that solar system. And the alien is moving away from mm -hmm. the solar system. So the alien ship is afraid. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So do the alien, do, do the Gorn know about the Metrons? Well, that's a really good point. So they must know something. Why would they be moving away from that solar system? There's no reason for the alien ship to move away from it. So somewhere along the way, the Gorn had had an encounter with the Metrons. Or even we've heard there are these legends. Even mm -hmm. they maybe just heard a, a, this is like Talos Four. Like, you know what? We don't know what's all going on over there, but let's just stay away from there. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Captain, the alien, it's slowing down. Four, five, four, two. And then it is stopped dead in space. And we've got them. And then suddenly the Enterprise slows down very, very quickly. And everyone on the bridge is hanging on for dear yeah. life because they're slowing down so fast. Same countdown from Sulu, we're mm -hmm. five, we're four, we're two, we're sublight, and then just absolute dead stop in space. And in the remastered version of Arena, we could see on the view screen uh, in the distance, right. we see the alien ship. And we're trying to figure out what's going on, what has stopped us. And basically, all the propulsion systems have zero power, but life support, totally fine. Phaser banks, completely inoperative. So what is going on here? And, they, and this is the, you know, it's like if you're a mechanic and, and you look at your car's engine and it's not running and literally every single thing looks like it should work, it's tough to fix, fix that engine. And that's kind of where they are right now. 
And we figure out that whatever that beam was getting hit from that other solar system, that's probably what's keeping us here. And then the lights dim, and then on the screen is this color, and we hear, We are the Metralos. I love this moment, because here we are, we're not even at the end of Act 2. And Steve, what has happened? We beamed down the Cestus 3, it's been destroyed. Uh, Kirk and Spock and the rest of the landing party are dodging explosions from the enemy. They beam back aboard the Enterprise. They're in hot pursuit of this alien. They've all stopped and are at a dead stop. And just at that moment, and I love the, the reaction shots from everyone on the bridge because all of the operational lights on the Enterprise go dark and there is mm-hmm. this flashing light. And on the screen is this glowing, blinking strobe. And you hear that voice, the voice actually of the Metron is Vic Perrin, who is very familiar. It's interesting that he says, we will control because he kind of said the same thing as the control voice for the outer limits. But the look of shock on everyone's face is like, what the heck is going on? Like they are absolutely in the unknown and they are, have clearly met their match. I think it's interesting too that they speak in the royal we. And I always, my feeling was this was not just one person speaking to them. That somehow, and again, I, by the by the way, something I would like to do down the line with our show is I would like to go put together a, a list of all the super powerful alien species we've encountered and compare and rank them. You know, like the Metrons versus the Telosians versus whatever the Charlie X people are versus Trulanes, the Organians. Like they're all different flavors of this society got way more powerful than us and they went that way. And this society went that way and ended up underground. And this society, you know, and like kind of, and the Metrons to me, they seem to have it together in a very specific way. Uh, And they say... You are one of two crafts which have come into our space on a mission of violence. This is not permissible. Yet we have analyzed you and have learned that your violent tendencies are inherent. So be it. We will resolve your conflict in the way most suited to your limited mentalities. And then they say, Captain James Kirk. They know who Captain Kirk is. And when Kirk responds, when he says... This is Kirk. He he does it not with the kind of force yeah. that he might have done it like five minutes ago. There's a little bit of, I want to say, fear in his voice because he's probably a little scared. <laughs> it's, that, it's that moment of, dude, they know your name. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, they um, know your name. And and what they basically say is that there's a planet nearby that they've prepared with a suitable atmosphere and they're going to take Captain Kirk and they're going to take the captain of the Gorn ship. That's the first time we hear Gorn. Mm. And we're going to send you there to settle your dispute. And you'll have a recording device that's hopefully you can record something that's basically going to warn off other people from making the same mistake. And you will each be totally alone. And Kirk at this moment tries to argue makes you think you can interfere it is you who are interfering we are simply putting a stop to it now let me ask you a question yes what gives the metrons the right to do this what kind of advanced intelligence 
would pit these two commanding officers and put them in a gladiatorial setting and have them duke it out and destroy the loser. How advanced could they possibly be if they would do something that not even we would do, not even probably the core would do. Are, so, you, are you sure about that? Well, I, uh, what would happen if there was a civil war in Southeast Asia, let's say, and a really powerful country came in and said, no, no, we're going to – we know what's best for you guys. Like, uh, like what was actually happening? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and, 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 and let's ask this question a different way. Let's say in – and name whatever country you want that has had a civil war or revolution in the last 100 years, which are many throughout South America, Central America, the Middle East, through Asia, Southeast Asia. There are lots and lots of them. What if a really powerful country, instead of funding one side or the other or or sending their own troops into the middle of the war, said, we're going to take one champion from each side. You fight it out. And whoever wins, wins. So so what you're what, what are you saying? Like, how how does well, arena correlate to what was going on in Vietnam? What, what I am saying is that rather than take a side or rather than believe that, you know, what's best for another country. The idea of taking a champion from each side and having them fight it out is going to have a lot fewer people dying and a lot less destruction than what we have mostly done throughout the world. That's what I'm so, saying. So, so you're saying that 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 makes the Metrons advanced, more advanced, not just than than humanity in the 20th century, but humanity in the 23rd century, because they're saying, look, enough, you know, enough people have died already. So we're just going to make you two duke it out. And whoever wins gets to go on their way. And whoever loses, you're all history. Yeah. Well, and and they're not saying they're going to destroy the Federation. They're going to destroy the Enterprise. And I'm not saying that this is right. That's not my point. But my point is, is that powerful societies always get involved in less powerful societies, almost always think they know best, whether it's the British Empire or the Roman Empire, or whether it was, you know, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, they have a belief that we know best and use violent means to make that happen. And I think as as far as interfering with other people's wars go, the Metrons is not nearly as bad as some of these other people, including us. That's so, what I'm so, saying. So then let me, let me rephrase my question. Instead of who, who do the Metrons think they are, does that make them really that more advanced if they're doing this? What do the Metrons represent in our current society? That is a really great question. And I think they don't re- – I don't think they represent anything in our current society. Mm, mm, I, okay. think, I think they, they are beyond humans. And, and I think this. If you wanted to construct an image in your head of the Telosians – and what their society, how it works. Do you think you could do it? Uh, well, maybe after seeing those episodes hundreds yeah. of times, probably. <laughs> if you wanted to construct an image in your head of the Metrons, could you do it? Based on what we see of the Metrons at the very end of this episode, and that the the conversation that the Metron has with a victorious James T. Kirk – Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I can at all. And I don't think I can with the Organians either. I think no, the, I Met- yeah. the Metrons and the Gordon, they, they are so far beyond us. And I think that is the point. The point is, is, is imagining a civilization that has advanced beyond our ability to imagine, which sounds like a contradiction. But I think what that's what they're saying is that the Metrons are just, we, they don't relate to us. You know, humans are humans. Like that's what, 
that that's what the point of Star Trek is, is that even though Kirk and the Enterprise and the Federation is advanced beyond us, Kirk is still angry about people getting killed and is still going out and making mistakes and still has to learn lessons that the Metrons don't have to learn anymore. That's mm-hmm. what I think. Okay. All right. Good conference. Good talk. <laughs> good, good talk. Um, and what we basically hear is we're going to send you guys down to the planet to fight. And on this planet, there's going to be stuff to make weapons that are sufficient to kill the other person. Whoever wins, they get to go home. And whoever loses is going to die. And we're going to destroy their ship. Kirk starts to argue. And they say, there will be no discussion. And he disappears. And Uhura screams. <laughs> Which, I, there are several Uhura moments that I just don't, I, I wish that they didn't do that. They're like, oh, we need someone to scream. It wasn't really a scream moment. You know what I mean? Right. That, that's why. That's what I'm saying. Is like, it's, it's, I still think Arena is a great episode, but I found more to argue with this time watching it than I have in the past. Then we see our first visual image of the Gorn. And what a great reveal it is because... On the bridge, the camera zooms in on Spock, who is has a very concerned and fascinating type of look on his face. Mm-hmm. And then the cut to the Gorn and the quick turnaround to the camera. The camera pans back to Kirk's point of view. So you get the full body shot of the Gorn. And mm-hmm. you also get the zoom in on Captain Kirk where he's just like, can't believe what's going on. And that is how you end act two. Again, another great act closer. Agreed. By the way, I don't think that there are slee stacks from the land of the lost without the Gorn. I think. Oh yeah. I think the Gorn is the proto slee stack, (laughs) which which, by the the way, (laughs) yeah, the sound and the moving really slow. And the slee stack scared the crap out of me as a kid. And it's so funny looking at things now where you're like, Really? That scared you? <laughs> like that's. Well, wait a minute. Don't don't you think the sleeve stack kind of look like the Gorn? A little that's what bit I'm too? saying. Yeah. 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 They look and sound like the Gorn. Yeah. Oh man, Mike, you just blew my mind, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we hear a little recap uh, uh, about what's going on, and it's interesting that Kirk says, "Like most humans, I seem to have an instinctive revulsion to reptiles. I must fight to remember that this is an intelligent." highly advanced individual, undoubtedly a dangerously clever opponent. And also an opponent, as we'll discover by the end of this episode, they have a whole lot more in common than the Gorn than than they don't have in common. So here we are, we're back on Vasquez Rocks, where they uh, filmed Shore Leave just a couple episodes mm-hmm. before. So the filming at Vasquez Rocks happened on day two of filming for Arena. Now, this is where Joseph Pevney started to earn that bonus, that $500 bonus that he would get for bringing the episode in on schedule. So on that first day at Vasquez Rocks, Pevney covered 34 scenes or the equivalent of nine script pages. And they were back at Desilu Studios by 6 p.m., that, and that's what happened over the next two days. And that's why he got his bonus. Did, 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 so do they have two days shooting at Vasquez? Three. Oh, three days shooting there. So 
That is so amazing. And, and I don't know how many people listen to this have made, worked on film sets or made films, but that number of setups on an exterior location with action sequences in it with stunts, that is just really, really efficient. I mean, like that's when you, really when you look at some of the episodes that we've talked about that have gone like real, like over schedule, and then you look at look at this episode and you go, oh, that must have been way over budget, way over schedule. And yeah, it was over budget, uh, but not over schedule. It was right on schedule. And that's that's why Joseph Pedney just wound up directing some of the very best episodes of Star Trek ever produced. So the Gorn costume was actually worn by three people, hmm. Gary Combs, Billy Blackburn, but mostly it was Bobby Clark in the full body Gorn costume. He was a stuntman who usually did Westerns and now he's playing the Gorn and, uh, you know, he does like sci-fi conventions of and Star Trek conventions. Of course he does. So do you know who did the voice of the Gorn? I have no idea. I'll give you a hint. Uh, what are little girls made of? Oh, it's, um, uh, what's his name? It's, it's uh, Ruck? Ted Cassidy. That's Ted right. Ted Cassidy. So not only did wow. Ted Cassidy play Ruck and voice the uh, voice the the Gorn, he was also the voice of Balok. Oh, Balok, right? In uh, the Corbomite maneuver, and the Gorn costume uh, was designed by Wa Chang, and who designed many monsters for the Outer Limits. And the Gorn wardrobe was designed by Star Trek's costume designer uh, Bill Tice. Hmm. So, and what happens is uh, we immediately go into some action. Uh, the Gorn gets a big stick. Kirk gets a little stick. <laughs> He's not going to do that much. Throws it away. The Gorn takes a swing at Kirk with the stick at super slow motion. <laughs> Breaks the stick. And then the Gorn throws a super slow punch, which Kirk easily dodges. Hits the Gorn. No response. Another dodge, chop the old karate chop to the back of the neck. No response. <laughs> no response. <laughs> he goes to kick the Gorn, gets tossed, grab, tossed. And now they're like grappling hand to hand. The Gorn is squeezing him, choking him. Looks like the Gorn's about to bite him. And then Kirk does the double hit to both Gorn ears. And that apparently hurts and he gets away. <laughs> um, I'll just say, so, you know, we've been talking about how sci-fi today is action oriented and that the, that Star Trek was, we talked about, it's like a radio play. It's, it's really idea oriented and character oriented. I really think that the, as we said many times, those ideas, the dramatic scenes, the characters are evergreen. I think this action just looks so weak. I mean, it just really, yeah, really it does. does you it know? does. But but you know what, Steve? You're 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 establishing. Okay, so the Gorn is very very strong, but, but very the Gorn slow. is very very slow. It's Kirk who has the speed. So they each have their strengths. And Kirk gets away and sees a boulder and picks up a pretty big rock, throws it at the Gorn, hits him right in the chest. <laughs> No reaction. So in addition <laughs> to being really, really strong, the Gorn is really, really tough. And talk about really strong. Kirk picked up, you know, a decent sized rock. The Gorn picks up a boulder, a huge, obviously styrofoam fake boulder and tosses it. And Kirk has to like dodge this giant boulder flying out of it. He gives a great Shatner gives a great like. Oh, crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, well, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, in earlier versions hmm. of this script, 
like once Kirk disappears from the bridge of the Enterprise, we didn't see the the Enterprise again until the very end of the episode. So basically, Act Three and most of Act Four was solely going to show Kirk on the asteroid with mm. the Gorn. It was Gene Roddenberry who said, "You got to figure out a way to cut back to the bridge of the Enterprise." And it was also Gene Roddenberry's idea to have the crew eventually watch how the events are unfolding on the view screen. And it was also Gene Roddenberry's idea for the translator device uh, so Kirk and the Gorn could communicate with each other. Those are all great. There's so many times in these first several episodes where Gene Roddenberry has come in with one or two ideas that just make everything so much better. Absolutely. And those I totally agree. And we are back on the bridge of the Enterprise and Spock is talking to Scotty about things that they can try. And basically we come to none of it is going to work. We have Mm -hmm. no idea. Not only do we have no idea how to get out of this, we can't. They're having trouble even thinking about thinking about how to get out of it. <laughs> I'm engaged in personal combat with a creature apparently called a Gorn. And again, it's some recap about what's happening. But what we notice is that the Gorn can hear what Kirk mm-hmm. is saying. There's very little here: scrub brush, rocks, an abundance of mineral deposits, but no weapons in the conventional sense. Still, I need to find one. Barehanded against the Gorn, I have no chance. Back on the bridge because of Gene Roddenberry's great idea. Bone shows up. It's like, okay, what are we gonna do? Uh, yeah, what are we doing? He's yeah. uh, challenging Spock. Where's the captain, Mister Spock? He's out there, Doctor. Out there somewhere in a thousand cubic parsecs of space, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to help him. Now, how many times throughout the course of the original series? Have has Kirk been taken from the bridge and Spock is in command and McCoy is challenging him every step of the way. We've seen this in Gamesters of Triskelion. We've seen this in That Which Survives. We've seen this in the Tholian web. This constant uh this this conflict, constant conflict between Spock and McCoy. And Usually, Spock is taking some sort of action, which may seem totally far-fetched, but it winds up being the right thing to do. In this case, Spock is like, I don't know what to do. Like, well, we're stuck and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, and this is where I go, I like. I think Gene Roddenberry is totally right about we want to check in on the bridge and see what our other characters are up to. But what isn't so good is that Gene Kuhn didn't come up with anything good for them to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we're kind of cutting back and going like, yep, still nothing we can do until we get to act four where Spock is watching what Kirk is doing in terms of the gunpowder. That gets really interesting. Uh, Now Kirk has seen some bamboo. It's not going to make a good weapon. The Gorn is doing something with some vines and a huge boulder. Kirk runs across some diamonds. An incredible fortune in stones. Yet I would trade them all for a hand phaser or a good solid club. By the way, the, the Gorn is very much a Frankenstein's monster kind of monster, you know, <laughs> slow moving. But the fact that we keep hearing the <laughs> sound like, we saw, oh, Gorn's coming. He's yeah, coming. Totally. Eventually, he's going to get here. And Kirk uh, looks down and sees that the Gorn is now working on some kind of a spearhead. 
And then he looks up and conveniently placed at the end of the rocks right on a cliff is a giant boulder that seems to be a slightly different color from everything else. And Kirk runs up because <laughs> he is going to drop this boulder on the Gorn. Scott, there is no way a human could move a rock that big. Not possible. <laughs> but this is Star Trek and Captain yeah. Kirk is very strong and very strong. You gotta have a big dramatic moment here, and this is this is this is it. <laughs> and he pushes that rock off the cliff. It hits the Gorn, who goes down. And Kirk's like, "I did it! I I beat him! I killed the Gorn!" He gets goes down the hill, and then the fingers on the Gorn's hands start to move, and he starts to get up. And then Kirk is running the other way. He's not thinking where he's going, and he runs right into the trap that the Gorn has set up. And he's tripped, and he falls, and the boulder from the trap is right on top of Kirk, and he can't move. And here comes the Gorn with this very sharp object. He raises his hands. He is going to plant this sharp object right into our captain. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. Every single, the teaser, every act break is exciting. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Uh, again, I'm just going to say a rock that big would have just broken Captain Kirk. <laughs> like, it's a really big rock. Uh, and the Gorn pushes away the rock right before killing Kirk. And Kirk, of course, was playing a little more injured than he really was. And he fights his way out. And now he is limping away looking like he is in pretty, pretty bad shape. And the And then we have this moment. It's a choice where the Gorn walks towards camera and towards camera until he goes totally out of focus. It's, but, but it's a great dramatic moment. Yeah, it's such yeah. a good moment. It's You know what's so funny is I think Arena, in a lot of ways, the more I think about it, represents a lot of the best in Star Trek and little pieces of the really cheesy stuff you can point to because it's a dude in a rubber suit and a lot of it's just like doesn't really hold up quite right. And But and it's also like, as a kid, I I, I I never saw any of that. I didn't think about it. You know, I only mm-hmm. think about that now watching it. I agree. This is the USS Enterprise calling the Metrones. We urgently desire a conference. Please answer. And this is the thought I had at this moment. I went, the Metrons are doing to them what the Gorn and the humans are trying to do each other, which is condemn without fully understanding or giving a chance to communicate. This is where, so before I was saying how the Metrons were much more advanced than us and and gave some reasoning, but I also think they clearly don't know everything about the Gorn and the humans, and they're not giving them a chance to talk, you know, which is exactly what Kirk is doing with the Gorn and the Gorn were doing with the human colony on Cessus Three. That's a good point. Again, this is another example of how, Ultimately, once we look past that we fear what we what we don't understand, we realize that the humans and the Gorn have a lot more in common and that they're both being motivated by the same fear of invasion. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, and that's why this is an archetypal Star Trek episode. Absolutely. Because yep. this is an archetypal Star Trek theme. Kirk is limping, desperate to find the weapon walks by some yellow powder. Native sulfur, diamonds, this place is a mineralogist's dream. Yet, there is something about sulfur. And he can't quite figure it out. But he will. I mean, (laughs) he's looking for a weapon, and the weapon is there hiding in plain sight. You just got to put it together. And we're back on the bridge, and the Metrons are now communicating with the bridge. 
Your captain is losing his battle. We would suggest you make whatever memorial arrangements, if any, which are customary in your culture. And McCoy yells. We appeal to you in the name of civilization. And I love the look from Nimoy at this moment. Because to me, it's kind of like, man, I wouldn't yell like that. But (laughs) I don't have anything else. So maybe that'll work. Yeah, he seems the first kind of thrown and annoyed that McCoy raised his voice at the Metrons. But then, well, let's see what the Metrons reply. Let's see what they say to that. And what they say is... Your violent intent and actions demonstrate that you are not civilized. But what civilized race would do these gladiatorial games? I mean, yeah, we did them, you know, back uh, in Roman times. And I guess uh, in the black market, we still do them in some ways. But how advanced are the Metrons truly if they are doing something that is uncivilized as pitting these two captains against each other and threatening to destroy the losers. There, There is a certain, I don't know quite how to express this the right way, but there is a certain arrogant interpretation of the term civilized. The way we tend to say it is that it's a destination, that there is a place called civilization. And that we move towards that place and anyone and that it is hierarchical so that this is more civilized than that. And it has tended to be, at least for our culture, a Eurocentric, male-centric version of what civilization means. And so what happens is we see other cultures who do stuff in a different way and we say, oh, that is uncivilized. But we don't look at the things that we do within our own culture, which other cultures might also deem to be uncivilized. So, for instance, one example is we go, well, there are certain cultures that would eat a dog, you know. Well, that's not civilized. How dare you eat a dog? Mm-hmm. Right, but there right, are other right. cultures who say, oh, my God, there are people that eat cows. Cows are sacred. How could you do that? That's um, a good point. A lot of these things that we think of as civilized or not civilized are come from a specific cultural perspective. So, like, one example would be that – Uh, Europeans who came to this country went, the people living here are savages. And it is our duty to civilize them. And by civilize them, that meant bringing them religion, having them dress in different kinds of clothes, have a mercantile society, et cetera, that kind of thing. But what we didn't do that they did do is take much, much better care of the environment that they lived in. And so they look at these people that are spoiling the environment everywhere and they go, those people are uncivilized. Because they don't care about the earth. Or there are societies that have been far more uh, matriarchal that look at the treatment of women in Western societies and go, they're not civilized. And so rather than thinking of civilization as a destination uh, that we're all going in the same direction, we could think of civilization as a matter of perspective is what I would say. And that and that anytime someone goes, the other side is uncivilized, frequently what they're saying is they don't act like me. They don't value what I value. But right. they don't think about the things that they might have that are better, that make well, also, more sense. You know, and and depending on on where the conversation is coming from, like like what perspective you're looking at, the whole notion of like what it means to be civilized is is subjective. Yeah. It, well and I think the the America is the best example of this. America is an example of a nation with tremendous ideals that has done incredible things and offers amazing opportunities and has things that, in my opinion, we should be desperately, painfully ashamed of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And both mm -hmm. of those things are true, you know. Um, 
Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we're back with on the bridge of the Enterprise. And now on the view screen, suddenly we see the Gorn. And again, Uhura has a cartoonish reaction where she yep. puts her hand to her face. And, and, and part of what I don't like about it is that it, I think it's demeaning to Uhura. I think they went, oh, she's the woman on the bridge. So let's give her some emotional reaction. Completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. And Sulu stands up. And I get it. The helplessness of, wait, we're just going to watch? If there were only some way we could contact him. Yes, indeed, Doctor. If only there were. You notice the substance encrusting that rock. Unless I'm mistaken... It's potassium nitrate. So? Perhaps nothing, Doctor. Perhaps everything. Well, he says perhaps everything because he sees on the view screen, he sees Captain Kirk taste it. And he sees that Captain Kirk has a smile on his face. So here you have Kirk on this asteroid. You have Spock on the bridge of the Enterprise. And they're both on the same page. It's almost like they're, they're communicating on mm-hmm. a, a subconscious level. And I love the way Nimoy plays this. I love. I think this whole section with Nimoy almost narrating what Kirk is doing, I just think is really fun. And the other thing that happens at this moment is suddenly we hear a new voice say, Earthling. Who is this, the Metron? This is your opponent, Earthling. And this is where we realize he's heard everything Kirk has said. And now he basically says, dude, I'm not so much a runner. I don't like this chasing around. If you just stop, I'll put you out of your misery real easy, but stop running. (laughs) I shall be merciful. Like you were at Cestus 3. You were intruding. And this gets to the heart of what this episode is really about. You established an outpost in our space. You butchered helpless human beings. And then cut to McCoy, and McCoy is us. Was Cestus III an intrusion on their space? It may well be possible, Doctor. We know very little about that section of the galaxy. Then we could be on the wrong. And so just like with this whole time, we've been treating these aliens, the Gorn, like they were invaders. And this is the Gene Kuhn flip. Mm-hmm. We were the invaders and they were protecting themselves. So the Federation and the Gorn, they have the exact same problem here. One thought that the other was invading the other. And one of the things I love, by the way, is Spock is classy enough not to say, that's what I was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we see Kirk, he finds a big, huge, round piece of bamboo. Fascinating. Good. Good. Because Spock knows. I like the way you said it. It's almost like there's some psychic link between the two of them. Absolutely. That they're connected. He knows, Doctor. He has reasoned it out. And McCoy at this point is going, what is it, Spock? Invention, Doctor. First potassium nitrate. And now if he can find some sulfur and a charcoal deposit or ordinary coal. Kirk finds the diamonds. Diamonds, the hardest known substance. Impelled by sufficient force, they would make formidable projectiles. And McCoy's still going, what force? What are you talking about, dude? Yes, like, cut to the chase, Spock. Yeah. What's happening? Recall your basic chemistry, doctor. Gunpowder. You remember how I said when we did uh, Shore Leave that I think Kirk was actually a bit of a nerd at the Academy? Mm-hmm. I think this is more evidence 
that this is chemistry. This is like he remembered his chemistry textbooks in order to have the recipe for making gunpowder. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. This, you know, he's not just some guy who sits in a chair, no. barks out orders. You know, this is the guy who was a stack of books with legs back yeah. at the academy. Yeah. He is a really smart person who really, really studied a lot. And it's all that study and smartness that gives him the ability to have all the swagger and to be the Captain Kirk that we love. But it's backed up by a lot of stuff. Kirk has grabbed some sulfur. He finds the coal. He loads it all up. He empties out the ingredients. He's putting them together. And slowly, 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 the Gorn is coming <laughs> towards him. Let me do it. If he has the time, Doctor. If he has the time. But this time is now a race against time. Yeah. And it just it just leads to such a great moment of suspense where even though we see the Gorn walking very, very slowly towards <laughs> Captain Kirk, but you know, Kirk has put everything into this big uh, this pig projectile and he's ripped off a piece of his pants and he's used the translator and a piece of coal to uh, ignite some kind of a kind of a spark that he can put on the projectile, aim it towards the Gorn, which he does in the nick of time, and Mm -hmm. it explodes, and Kirk is thrown back from the force. The Gorn is knocked out, and it's such a great moment of edge of your seat suspense. 100%. And I can so remember loving this as a kid. And lo- and I love the ingenuity and the science of it. And, and, and the thing is, is that, yes, the Gorn is really slow, but there's a history of slow, scary villains. The slow approach of death is a lot w- times more suspenseful than the fast approach of death. By the way, I had to go look it up. There actually is a Mythbusters episode where they tried to create Kirk's cannon to, to destroy the Gorn, and they made black powder by hand by mixing potassium nitrate, charcoal, and um, sulfur. They were able to get it to ignite after a lot of experiments. And this is, again, this is just mixing stuff by hand, but they could not get it to shoot a projectile. There just oh, wasn't wow. enough force and there wasn't enough. There's so much air because you're just putting kind of random rocks in it that, that the bullet isn't really sealed into the space. So it doesn't create enough force. But then because this is the Internet, Scott, and this is YouTube, I found some other dudes who did make it work <laughs> with bamboo, with handmade black powder. It was a, a smaller tube, but they did fire a projectile. OK, let's let's just think about that. You're talking about a 55-year-old episode of Star Trek that has inspired all these different people to make their own sort of makeshift cannon using all the ingredients that Kirk found on this asteroid. I mean, just think about that. That this this little episode of this 55-year-old show has 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 people like like like. Let me see if this really works. That's the power of Star Trek right right there. It's absolutely crazy. And the Gorn is down and Kirk grabs the Gorn's sharpened weapon, gets right over his throat. It looks like he's about to put all of his weight, which will be necessary to penetrate the Gorn's tough skin. And he's about to kill him. And he pauses. And then he says, no, no, I won't kill you. Maybe you thought you were protecting yourself. But then he looks up and he shouts, no, I won't kill him. Do you hear? You'll have to get your entertainment someplace else. And Steve, this is the moment of compassion. This is the arc 
that you and I have discussed so many times when talking about the noblest traits of James T. Kirk, the moment of compassion that we've seen in episodes like The Corbomite Maneuver, Charlie X, Balance of Terror, and later, Inspector of the Gun. We are going to kill this thing. It is the enemy. And then at the moment when they need our help, we extend our hand in peace. I think it is so classically Star Trek. And you asked way at the beginning, why is Kirk's behavior different here than Balance of Terror? And I think the difference is, is this is the first time he was emotionally off balance. It's one thing to look at a, a, a situation objectively and choose compassion. It's another thing to see the death and destruction caused by these people. And then to be fighting literally hand in hand with someone who is at your throat trying to kill you and want to kill them and then stop. And that. say no, just yeah. like Inspector of the Gun, you yeah. know, the Morgan, uh, the Earps and Doc Holliday are ready to kill Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Scotty. And, you know, Chekhov's already dead at the OK Corral. And just as Kirk was holding the gun in the guy's face and he, you know, cocks the pistol and then throws the gun down. And he that's that's what we love about this guy. That's. Ultimately, and I know I mentioned this already, but it's this moment of nobility, mm -hmm. the, the moment of compassion. This is why we love James T. Kirk. Well, and, and again, to play this game that isn't really real and is somewhat silly, but I like, is if we speculate that his character is evolving, this moment of not killing the Gorn maybe has some effect on his choices in A Taste of Armageddon or Spectre of the Gun. And maybe his experiences that he's going to have with the Organians is also going to change who James T. Kirk is over time. Like this is sort of the taking a little bit of the arrogance out of the guy, you know, like, guess what? You're awesome, but you're not always right. You know, I mean, and look, and look at look at how arrogant he was on the bridge when they were in pursuit of the yeah. alien vessel. A again, you have this moment on the bridge where McCoy is having this conversation with Spock, saying, "You know, we were in the wrong. We were invading their territory." And then, just at the moment when Kirk is about to kill the Gorn, he says, "No, I'm not going to kill you. Maybe you were just defending yourself from us." Again, there's this like psychic connection between Kirk and between Spock and McCoy. Absolutely. And at this moment that he says no, the Gorn disappears and a golden Metron appears. And Kirk's like, you're a Metron? Does my appearance surprise you, Captain? You seem more like a boy. I am approximately 1,500 of your Earth years old. The Metron is played by actress Carol Shaleen, and mm. it was the second time that a woman was used to play an alien, but the voice that was dubbed in was a man's, and this is after the keeper, Talosian, in right. the cage. Um, and the conversation they have is that Kirk surprised them. By sparing your helpless enemy, who surely would have destroyed you, you demonstrated the advanced trait of mercy. We assume that the Metrons like scanned them with very seriously to find out all about them because they say the thing of it seems like that your violence is inherent. Well, the crew of the Enterprise has been merciful a bunch up to this point. And this is where I kind of go either they didn't scan them that well or the Metrons are not as free of mistakes 
as they present themselves to be. And I actually just kind of go, I think this is just a flaw in the writing. We feel that there may be hope for your kind. Therefore, you will not be destroyed. It would not be civilized. But Steve, in the original dialogue Mm. and an earlier version of the shooting script, the Metrons were prepared to kill whoever was victorious. Wow. Because whoever was going to be victorious here would actually potentially emerge as a threat to the Metrons. Interesting. And it was Kirk's display of nobility and compassion. Hmm. And that is why the Metrons did not destroy uh, the Enterprise and, and, and Kirk. And this was actually made clear. You, you ever read those uh, Star Trek adaptations by James Blish? I read some of them, yeah. Okay, you know, like I, you know, I had those books growing up, and you know, there were like seven or eight episodes in each volume, mm-hmm. and they yeah. were really condensed versions of the episodes. And many times, James Blish was not working from the finished episode. He's working. He from was the working from a script, and maybe even an early version of a script that went through further changes. So, in James Blish's adaptation of Arena which appeared in Star Trek Volume 2, that's where it was clear that the Metrons were actually Mm. intending to kill the winner until Kirk displayed the compassion. Um, There was just recently an episode, I think it was 99% Invisible, uh, the podcast, there's a fantastic podcast, and was all about people who did adaptations of these movies and books that had never seen the movie, never watched the TV show, that there's no relation because they just needed to get something on the cover that related to whatever the thing was so they could sell a few copies of some book. It's a really, it's, it's a fantastic podcast. It's a really good episode. Oh, interesting. You are still half savage, but there is hope. We will contact you when we are ready. And the Metron disappears and Kirk is suddenly back on the bridge. Everyone asks if he's all right. And what's funny is he doesn't tell them what happened and they don't ask for a while, which seems strange. Um, (laughs) uh, And one of the other things is Sulu looks down at his console and we are like 500 parsecs away from where they were. Um, So those Metron guys are pretty powerful. Well, they're, they're not the only powerful beings to be able to transport the enterprise halfway across the galaxy. Uh, They were able to do that in uh, Gamesters with Triskelion, you yeah. know, there's, but, but it's interesting that with, with arena, you know, with the Metrons telling Captain Kirk, you know, there's hope for you, just like the way that the Organians mm-hmm. told uh, Kirk and Spock that there's hope for you. And that, uh, you know, basically saying that the Federation and the Klingons will one day become allies. Yeah. So the, again, another example of a quintessential Gene Kuhn trait where, you are looking at your your dynamic with the Enterprise and the Enterprise crew, and there is a far more powerful force out there in the galaxy. And it's almost like Kirk and the Enterprise crew, they're, they're so humbled by the mm-hmm. notion that they are not the most powerful beings in the galaxy. 100%. And Spock asked Kirk what happened, because apparently they lost picture after he fired off the cannon. And rather than explain what happened, Kirk says, We're a most promising species, Mr. Spock, as predators go. Did you know that? I frequently had my doubts. <laughs> I don't. Not anymore. 
And maybe in a thousand years or so, we'll be able to prove it. A thousand years, Captain. Well, that gives us a little time. So after all that, you're able to end the episode on a moment of humor and levity and lightheartedness. Scott, I'm curious, what were people's reactions to this episode? Let's look at Bobby Clark. Bobby Clark spent most of the time in the Gorn costume. He was a stop man. And he said, Shatner was always good to work with. He knew what he was doing. And we got those scenes shot pretty fast. I give him credit. The man worked hard. And speaking of William Shatner, Shatner had this to say about Arena. He says, quote, I did 14 pages of dialogue in one day. The average was nine or 10 pages a day, and I did 14. The show came in on time. The director got $500, and I didn't even get a thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bill. Does that sound like Shatner or what? (laughs) Totally. And what about you? What do you think? What is your, what are your final thoughts on arena? Well, I think uh, there's, there's, there's always a lot more to the episode than there is when you're watching it as a young person. Well, there, there, certain things about Star Trek that you have to grow into. And I think there are so many messages that the very best Star Trek episodes have had to say that you just need to be a little older and wiser to get them. And ultimately the, the prospect that, the Gorn and the Federation were absolutely reacting in the same way. They both felt like they were being invaded upon by the other, and they were both lashing out at the other, and it was costing lives on both sides. And it is only when Kirk says, wait, let's talk, let's communicate, that the fighting stops. To this day in our society, there's so much strife going on, not just overseas and across borders, but within our own borders, because there's not enough communication. And here's an episode that is about communication. So I think that was a big takeaway for me this time, that after this episode was produced 20 years after World War II, during the Cold War, Every country was threatened by another country in one way or another, and I think that still holds true to today. And we are so bound by what we have in common with people and with nations and with beings that we think are our enemies, but we actually are more in common than uncommon. I I 100% agree. And that's always been one of the most important messages of Star Trek for me, of the person you perceive as your enemy might not be, and they might be more like you than you suspected. And that is certainly profound and certainly true. But I started thinking about another thing related to that, which is there's also the issue of time. And there's sort of the issue of when did the conflict begin? Because for Kirk, there was this peaceful colony and the peaceful colony out of nowhere was wiped out. And that is when the conflict began. But when you finally find out what's going on with Gorn, you find out that their conflict began earlier. 
that there was an, an event that is what they're thinking back to. So like the kids on the schoolyard who said, well, you started it because you took my doll. And it's like, well, I only took your doll because you did this other thing. Well, I only did that. And in fact, the who started it goes back further and further. And if you look at a lot of our conflicts, if you look at both sides, frequently the narratives don't begin at the same moment. They begin at different moments. And so each one can claim that the other side started it. And each one can claim, I only did this because you did that. Exactly. And I, I want to do something that I've never, ever done on this show before, which is I want to go back to what was going on in the world at the time that this was shot. Mm-hmm. On November 12th, 1966, four Israeli soldiers were killed by a landmine on the Jordanian border. And so... In response to that, Israel sent tanks across the border to attack towns that they believed were harboring the terrorists that had planted those landmines. In response to that, the Jordanians launched their air force. And in response to that, the Israelis launched their air force. And in this example is a perfect example of each side responding to violent actions on the other side in a way that seems fairly reasonable. And both sides could claim that the other side started it. And I'm not obviously going to get into Israel and Palestine in any way in this podcast. It's not appropriate. But what I do want to say is that part of what we have to do is understand that even if we strongly disagree, even if we hate the other side, even if the other side has done terrible things to us, they have a narrative. And that narrative makes sense to them. And that... Nobody ever has to make peace with their friends. The only people we have to make peace with are the people that have hurt us. That's what making peace is. We, it's never going to be in good circumstances. It's always going to be in response to pain and overcoming tragedy. And that is how we make peace. You know, I, I agree with you. I'm glad you brought that point around again. And Steve, you know, we've often talked about how Star Trek was a really great show from the beginning. You know, Gene Roddenberry is a showrunner, day-to-day producer. Uh, he he just did such a marvelous job with Star Trek. And then Gene Kuhn comes in and he he just makes the show better, really. Yeah. And there's there's more allegory, there's more morality in Star Trek after Gene Kuhn took over. And just the fact that you have so many, especially the episodes that he actually wrote, where you start off the episode not understanding this this menacing force. So your reaction is to try to kill it or destroy it. But then when you realize that perspective, where that side is coming from, or what this side actually represents, you go, wait, dumb. I was wrong. I yep. had it all wrong. Let's rethink this. This is this happened in Arena again. It happened in Devil in the Dark. It happened in Errand of Mercy. And it absolutely happened in Metamorphosis. And I think that is where Gene Kuhn applied many of his strengths so that we see our our heroes, which represent the free world, but are not perfect and that even in the 23rd century we are still learning star trek has never been about the perfection of humanity it's been about the striving for the perfection of humanity and even in the 23rd century and the 24th century for all the later shows we are still learning how to be a better people i i 
I think that's what you said is absolutely great. And I want to add one small thing, which is it just occurred to me. Some of these episodes are more black and white, like devil in the dark. It's like, that's a mother protecting her kids. And once you know that, then it totally changes everything. Absolutely. Arena has a lot of gray areas. It's not that the, it's not that the Gorn are innocent, you know? No, no, they're not. You know what I mean? At all. Like, they, they, they did attack Cessus three without knowing who that colony is or trying to communicate that they are not. And so like, it's, it's actually, this is a more difficult episode. I think in some ways than devil in the dark to get past because it's still gray. These, you know, it's still complicated. Um, and it leads me, I have, I have two questions I'd love to ask, uh, for on social media. The first is something we talked about quite a bit at the beginning, which is why is Kirk so angry? Why is his behavior different from how it was in Balance of Terror? And the mm. second question I would love to ask is one Scott and I discussed a lot is, is what the Metrons did civilized? Was mm-hmm. this a good thing? Them jumping in and pitting these two people, you know, Gorn against man, was that a good thing to do? Was that a civilized choice? Uh, and if you want to answer that question, the best place is on our Facebook page. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. Of course, we also will listen to your answers if they come up on Twitter, on YouTube, where all of our episodes are posted and you can subscribe to the show and leave comments there. We're on Instagram. Uh, I didn't say the Twitter address, which is Enter Incidents. Instagram is Enterprise Incidents. Please subscribe to the show. If you're not on YouTube, then do it on Apple Podcasts. If you don't use Apple products, then maybe Spotify is for you or Google Play. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It is the most important way that the information about our show gets out there. Please tell all your Trekker friends about Enterprise Incidents. And Scott, if people wanted to find you, how would they do it? Well, you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to check out my fa- my uh, my YouTube page, which is just Scott Mance. I produce a lot of separate film content and review movies for my YouTube page. And occasionally, you will see me popping up from time to time on Steve Morris's other show, The Cinephiles. Well, and if you are interested in uh, listening to The Cinephiles, that's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. It's the different spelling. And you wanted to see maybe some episodes where people have some serious combat. Well, you could check out our episode on Enter the Dragon or Jackie Chan's Police Force, some of the greatest sword fights of all time in The Princess Bride. But if it's really just two people going toe-to-toe in an arena, well, you could check out our episode on one of the greatest boxing films of all time, Rocky. Oh, and, that's and, a good one. <laughs> and if you wanted to follow me, you could do it on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris one. Scott, we've left the Gorn. Where is the enterprise going next? Well, Steve, you know, so far on enterprise incidents, so this is now the 20th episode that we've recorded together. Some of the episodes have been great. Some of them have been flat out masterpieces. And then there are a few that were just, you know, kind of okay, where we've leaned into the good side and a great conversation out of it. And I think the best example of that is definitely Miri. Uh, I think that's one of my favorite conversations with you so far uh, is on Miri. And actually for everybody listening, we would love to know which episode of Enterprise Incidents you loved the most so far. Which conversation did you did you love between me and Steve? But you know, Steve and I have looked into the good and tried to make the glass look very much half full. 
when sometimes it was half empty. <laughs> and we are going to have our work cut out for us with our next episode of Enterprise Incidents when we do our deep dive on the alternative factor. <laughs> Anything you want to say about that right now, Steve? <laughs> so, yes, this is not a great episode of Star Trek, but I ought actually think there's still a great conversation to be had there. And sometimes seeing the episodes that aren't so good is maybe helps us to better understand what makes great episodes great. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I know we're going to have a great conversation on the alternative factor on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.